Welcome to today's East East European seminar series. I'm Heidi Markowska, I'm a historian of Ben Ward in Central Europe, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Mikhail Shorty Sex, actors behind me, and he's come from the Max Planck Institute in Rostock, where he works on demographic research. In particular, he tries to bring together concepts from family history with demographic research. And he's particularly involved at the moment in the Mosaic Project, which is a big collaboration provide micro-historic data from across Europe. Uh, and he's talking to us today about family systems in the historic poem Lithuanian demographic perspectives on civilizational divide in Eastern Europe. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be for the second time in Oxford. Well, most the basis of the today's presentation comes from the, the, the book project that I'm currently undertaking. And I hope that the book will finally be published by the end of this year, and as um, after the introduction by Natalia, some of you may imagine, the, the very core of the book is formed by uh, a very formal structural demographic analysis of family patterns in historical Poland, Lithuania, and I wouldn't dare to bother you as historians for 40 or 45 minutes with all these tables, graphs, diagrams, models, but I'm deeply convinced that some of these demo strictly demographical findings have much wider implications. Implications which go much beyond the, the usual terrain of demographers or historical demographers. That's why I call it the experiment. It's also an experiment in the sense that I will use um, demographic data and try to interpret them in a, in a way which is not very usual for quantitatively oriented demographers. So just to give you a little overview, I will start with a very brief discussion of what is known as symbolic geographies uh, pertaining to Eastern European space. This will be a very, very, very brief introduction because the topic in itself can become, can become a separate issue. Then I will uh, explain a little bit how demographic variables pertaining to family systems can be interpreted in, in, in cultural um, as features related to cultural systems. And then I will introduce the database that I have built. Uh, and actually, I think it's, well, uh, it's worth remark remarking that actually I started working on this project and I started to work on this database back in 2006 uh, when I joined as a Marie Curie Fellow uh, the Cambridge Group. And so it's been already six years and I hope to really get rid of this. And then I'll the next point is, is the very core of the presentation, which is basically showing you the, the striking differentials in family organization within historic Poland, Lithuania. And then I will try to interpret and partly also explain those observed differences by turning into more qualitative evidence that uh, is taken from existing ethnographies of different areas of historical Poland and also qualitative evidence taken from uh, village card rolls, card protocols, wills, and um, testimonies. I don't think I will have time to delve into the very last point, which I think is also very important, but I will probably only remark, uh, remark briefly at the very end while concluding. So uh, the very fact that Poland Lithuania was located in this particular part of Europe allows one to uh, move into the terrain of 
which is which is traditionally not occupied by historical demographers. It is because Poland, uh, well, this eastern part of Europe, to which Poland Lithuania historically belonged, has been for almost 50 years an object of very interesting attempts at historical region building, and one could suggest three different or, or, or three different ways the scholars have been dealing with the problem of region building in historical Eastern Central Europe by uh, looking first at, at those whom I call Eastern Europeanists who simply assume that everything that is east of Elbe River can be considered as a one, one big region largely characterized by backwarded socio-economy setting uh, which could likely provide Europe with the first model of underdevelopment. And actually, and, and of course, one could here refer to scholars like Wallerstein, Hungarian uh, economic historians, Bernd and Ranke, Perry Anderson, uh, Gale Stokes, uh, and some others. And the second group are, well, let's call them Central Europeanists, who, uh, following uh, Milan Kundera, suggested, well, actually, there is a very specific area within what Eastern Europeans call East of Elbe River, which is very specific, and it's actually located between the German-speaking area and Russia. It is politically in the East. I mean, Kundera was writing in the time where the Iron Curtain was still there. It's geographically in the center, and it's very much culturally in the West. And of course, one of the uh, most important elements that all the scholars referred to was the importance of Western Christianity. And finally, there is a group of scholars, which I call Eastern, East Central Europeanists, who suggest that neither of these two above options uh, holds true, that actually one could think of a large intermediate transitory area located between Sweden, Germany, Italy, Turkey, and Russia, which is clearly an outpass of the Western civilization. And of course, one should here mention Oskar Halecki, a Hungarian historian Schutz, and Kochowski, very famous Polish historian of religion, Isajewicz, and Piotr Vandic. And of course, in all those attempts, Poland-Lithuania uh, featured a very important position. Halecki, for example, argued that Poland-Lithuania as such was very definitely part of Europe. Vandic, suggested that it actually can be interpreted as an intermediary territory between the Latin and Byzantine civilizations. However, still he believed it was an integral part of the first one. Kuchowski looked at the issue from a slightly different angle, arguing that this is the Poland Lithuania represented a sort of cross-cultural territory with various influences, counterbalancing and mixing and how all these attempts were actually created. So one group of scholars took one sort of variable or one aspect and looked at it very carefully, looking at different national perspectives, original perspectives. For example, one group, prominent group of scholars look at socio-economic developments, particularly at one of uh, its aspects, namely the, 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 the phenomenon of, of the second serfdom. Others look at political structures, uh, all of them have been largely using the, the modernization paradigm. Others looked at what they call the shirt, cultural traditions, cultural encounters, but very much from the perspective of the elites. Uh, others yet 
considered diffusion of legal aspects, in particular the, the spread and diffusion of the, the concept of the German law, Jus Teutonicum. But what is very clear that in none of those approaches one could find any uh, interest in looking at the, the problem of region building in this part of Europe from the perspective of family organization. Well, this is a little bit odd if we consider how important the family is and has been. And, uh, well, Bourdieu and many other sociologists suggested that, well, family is of prime importance in social reproduction and for the transmission of values. Anthropologists and other scholars argued that the family is an arena for the expression of age and sex roles and for the kinship, socialization and economic cooperation. Well, recently some very clever economists uh, found a very interesting correlation between uh, uh, economic prosperity and different types of family structure. Others yet suggested that family relations provide the model for political systems and can be interpreted as the source of political culture. That, of course, comes uh, directly from the very influential book of Immanuel Todd from 1980s, uh, Explanation of Ideology. And finally, uh, scholars working in the development of welfare regimes suggest that differences in welfare systems in contemporary Europe can actually be traced back to different historically grounded family structures. So, following this um, agenda, we could think of the, of the concept of family system. Here is a very conservative definition. The family system can be understood as an entity that comprises the household and marriage arrangements typical of a certain population at a certain time and all connected phenomena, a social institution that changes with time and which development depends on the combined effects of numerous external factors. And of course, this can be extended in order to include several sub-elements of a given family system to include patterns of family, family labor organization, marital behavior, residence patterns of the elderly people, household structure, living home, and also other important life course transitions. Starting from that, I created a list of five important aspects of the family system, which I'm going to interpret, uh, explore, describe, and interpret today with regards to historical point Lithuania. So first is living home. Well, of course, it's one of the major points in the individual life course, which has very important uh, um, implications for lots of individual outcomes, like childbearing, labor force participation, union formation, etc. Service, what I, what I mean here is, is the fact that has been confirmed for many Northwestern European societies of the circulation of wealth outside the family economy between living home and marriage. And it has been considered to be a, a cornerstone, a, a key feature of the very unique Northwest European family system, particularly in England and in, in the Low Countries and also partly in Scandinavia. And well, scholars very often linked it to the expansion of the wage labor and some even went so far as to argue that the, the widespreadness of the, the life cycle service in some part of, parts of Europe may explain the development of capitalism. Marriage, well, uh, we don't need to explain why marriage is important, even in the area where people claim that marriage is losing its importance, we know why it is, may, may be important. It's a very, it's one of the clearest transitions from, from childhood to adulthood. 
for demographers, uh, marriage is important because it marks the, uh, the individual exposure to uh, reproduction. And in many historical societies, marriage was associated with very important family arrangements concerning the transfer of property and also authority. Headship, well, as we are going to deal with historical rural societies, so there is no doubt that within rural societies it really mattered a lot whether one was head of household or not. So headship mattered a lot in those rural societies and also from the life course perspective becoming a household head can be considered to be a, a sort of an end point on the road to independence. And finally aging. Aging here is understood in a sense to what extent different family systems and may provide for the aging members of the society and to what extent different family systems are protective towards the <coughs> aged, vulnerable, infirm, etc. And of course, as, as such, this, this sort of variable uh, is closely linked to such aspects as, as familial loyalty, family ties, the strength of family ties, which can all be turned to some extent as the, the extent of what is often called the familism. Okay, there's a, one important frame of reference for us before delving into the, the analysis is the notion of Kresy. For those who are a little bit familiar with the history of Poland-Lithuania or with the history of the Second Polish Republic, this will definitely ring the bell. I mean, Kresy literally well, confines, limits, borderlands, were those territories which were uh, lost, eastern part of territories that was lost as an effect of partitions, and these were also territories which, back into the 16th century, were gained by the Kingdom of Poland in the effect of the Union in, in Lublin in 1569. Uh, and over the course of, of history, uh, these eastern territories, territories were imbued with very complex meanings, referring to cross-border identities, inter-area frontier, outpost, etc. And actually, their features were, were the following. They were clearly different in many, many aspects, both in terms of prevailing agrarian regime, they were different in terms of ecology. Well, some people refer even to sort of primordial qualities of the people in Kresy, who were considered not fully Polish or not even fully European. They were simply considered to be different. And one of the famous Polish anthropologists, actually the student of Malinowski, Józef Obramski, who was conducting uh, a fieldwork in early 1930s in the Kresy area in southern Belarus, considered the area that he was visiting the Polish Trier grounds, referring to the famous area studied by Malinowski himself. Uh, and again, I have never come across any suggestion that the reason why the Kresy were different was because the people who inhibited this area were different demographically or different in terms of how their families and domestic groups were organized. So, in a sense, this is another incentive for us to, to look more carefully at uh, the demography of historical family in those territories. Okay, let me tell you briefly about the data. So, over the many years, I have been building a database 
which is composed of what is commonly referred to in historical demography as census microdata. These are not censuses as such in a modern sense, but these are different types of residential individual level listings, listing inhabitants of villages, parishes or estates individually by their domestic groups. Those who know Polish, you can see, you can see clearly that people are listed by dom. Dom is simply house or hut. Paupa is, is another name for house. So um, I have collected hundreds of them and all of them contain a, a, a standard core set of, of demographic information like well, name, last name for household heads, relationship, relationship to the head, age, sex, and sometimes, but not very often, socioeconomic position or occupation. This is the spatial distribution of those data. Each point referred to one parish or one estate. So as you can see, there's a pretty large coverage. This is actually a very extensive database, which consists of more than 200 parishes, almost 27,000 households, 160,000 people. And uh, well, from the point of view of, of contemporary uh, existing collections of census microdata, this is, this, is, this is nothing, but I mean, for historical population of the late 18th century, this is a pretty big collection of, of individual level data. As you can see, the, the, the coverage uh, extends from, from Western Poland, and including also Silesia at the time under the Prussian rule, into a very transitory area here, nearby Lublin, uh, then into Ukraine and Belarus. Well, using different statistical uh, devices, those individual uh, points, parishes were grouped into larger regions, and these larger regions into even more larger regions. So, basically, in today's presentation, what I'm what I'm not referring to is the is the notion of variation. I mean, I, I spent quite a lot of time dealing with variation on the conference organized by Philip last year. So, I hope Philip will excuse me that I will take a much broader view now, uh, looking at those big. Uh, regional groupings. I mean, this is uh, actually supported by lots of, um, of statistical testing of uh, within and inter-regional variation. So I'll be talking primarily about those three big clusters, west, east, one, east, three. And just to show you how this distribution would look like if you put it on a contemporary map of Eastern Europe. And, uh, well, you might ask yourself, well, okay, I mean, but there are white spots here, white spots there, etc., etc. Well, of course, I mean, it took me several years digging in the archives and also dealing with the Mormons, getting the data from them. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that actually this is, this is almost the best one could get from, from, from what is available, what actually survived after the Second World War in terms of distribution. And Natalia just mentioned the Mosaic Project, and within the Mosaic Project we have managed to get Lots of data for Lithuania, lots of data for Latvia, and also lots of data for this so-called right bank Ukraine. But, I mean, this is not going to be included in the book. And actually, it would definitely add some important uh, dimensions to what I'm presenting today. But I think this will suffice to show you the, the, um, very clearly the existing contrast within the country. The important thing is that all these parishes, all these places, all these data refer only to rural populations. So there are no little towns, no big towns, no urban agglomerations, and also Jews are excluded for many, many reasons. So these are mostly rural societies uh, who are either Polish, 
well, I mean, if you can speak about Polishness for the late 18th century, Ukrainian or Belarusian, uh, and with some small minor, German minorities in, in Silesia. Okay, the, the data are pretty much concentrated in the late 18th century. There's only one small group of uh, listings that come from the, the beginning of the 19th century. And as you can see, most are from the 1790s and 1780s. Okay, we start with timing of living home. I mean, using demographic devices uh, and some techniques that, that have been developed by demographers, we can estimate, estimate an approximate age at living home from census microdata. We can do specific adjustments, controlling for some confounding factors. I'm not going to go into, into these technical details. But what it says, first of all, if you look at maize, it shows a tremendous contrast between those three areas of historical Poland Lithuania. In the West, maize were leaving home approximately at age 18. Seven years later, in central Belarus, and even 10 years later, in southern Belarus in the region known as Polesia. You, you don't find that many differences when it comes to the female population for the reasons which are quite understandable and I will come back to that in a moment. If we move to the question of service, then the, the first important issue is that we find a, a pretty, pretty significant share of servants in the population of Western Poland and Negligible, negligible, only negligible numbers of servants in the other, other clusters. I mean, this 13%, it may not appear to you as a really important, but actually, I think the proportion of servants in the English population in the early modern period was, didn't go uh, above 13 or 14%. So, for many scholars, including uh, Peter Lasted, something around 10%, share of servants in the given population may indicate that we are dealing with the family system which is very much Northwestern European. And if you look at those Western servants, this is population age sex pyramid, you see that they are very highly concentrated among young people, young males and females who left home and what is very important, all of them in overwhelmingly are unmarried. So these are young adolescents who just left home and become servants in households of people to whom they were not related just before getting married. Well, in effect, what we see is that the presence of servants in the labor market in, in Western Poland created opportunities for very specific household recruitment strategies. As we see here, almost a quarter of the uh, male labor force in the Western cluster consisted of hired non-relatives, relatives, hired labor, laborers as servants. And what you see in those two Eastern clusters is actually that the tasks performed by servants in Western Poland were actually substituted by relatives in the two Eastern clusters. And basically, if you look at Southern Belarus, what you see that almost 99% of all male labor within domestic groups is consisted of immediate or more wider relatives. So in a sense, these eastern groups, they form sort of corporate domestic groups composed of only kin-related people. Okay, if we look at marriage, 
again using the, the, one of the most uh, common methods of estimating the age of marriage from the census data, we can get 27 for males in Western Poland, 23 in East One, and below 20 in Southern, uh, uh, Southern Belarus, East Three. So the difference is quite striking, and it's even more striking for females. What we see in Western Poland is the age 22.5, I mean, it may appear quite low, I mean, 27.3, I was married at age 30, so there's not a big difference, you know, 200 years ago. But if we look at this, this female age of marriage in the eastern part of Poland, this is very striking. There were only very few societies in the world at that time, or even later, for which you would find such a low age of marriage, like Russia, for example, and, uh, well, you would find it in, in, in 20th century India, Pakistan, uh, and in some African societies, like in Ghana, for example. But this is not the whole story. Well, these are the percentiles, I mean, without going into details, what is it, but what it says is that 25% of those males in, the, in southern Belarus who eventually married had done so by the age of 16. And when we look at females, then it says that 25% of those females who eventually married had done so by the age of 14, and 10% of them by the age of 12. So what we're dealing here with is the society for which we can, with a high degree of certainty, assume the prevalence of child marriages and presumably arranged marriages by the elders. And again, I mean, this is a very striking pattern. This is, this is Europe. This is still Europe. This is part of Poland, Lithuania, 18th century. And again, the, the pattern like this, you would only find in China, India, Pakistan. So these are very striking differences. And this is too, this is, this is part of Ukraine. I mean, the sample is very small here. But it, it's very striking that actually, even in some places in Ukraine, you will find patterns which are not fully consistent with with the, these two other eastern territories. So it's not always like this typically clear-cut east-west distinction. Okay, headship. I will briefly explain what it says. These are the age-specific proportions for males of those who ever married, ever got married. So either they are married or are widowed. And the blue card indicates proportion of males who are ever married but also are head of households. So imagine the society in which whenever there is a marriage, it always results in establishing an independent household. Then the two cars would completely overlap. So everybody who is married is at the same time the head of a household. So what you see here, actually that nowhere the cars really overlap. But I mean, the distance between the two in Western Poland is not that big. It suggests that, well, those who marry probably soon after become of a household head. But here, I mean, these guys, look, this is 98% of males 25 to 29 are married, but only 40% of them are household heads. So where are they? They simply marry and join the parental household or the household of a brother or the household of a cousin. And then you can also measure the, the time span between marriage and becoming a head. And it actually confirms what we saw looking at these two cards. 
that the time spent between marriage and becoming head in the West is, is less than two years, it's around two years. I mean, these are means, so you can imagine there's a huge variation around the mean. So there are presumably a large number of males who actually got married immediately after, or exactly at the marriage, and a small fraction of those who probably married sometime before becoming a head of a household. But here, you know, these guys were waiting 15 years on average after marriage to become an independent householder. Before they gained a status of independent householder. During that time, they could produce five to six children. So again, this tells you a little bit about how what we can call the road to independence, how much it differed between those areas of historical Poland. But there's another problem, in, interesting problem in these two cards. Look, this blue one here, it suggests that proportion of males who are becoming household head, it increased very consistently up to the age of 50 or something, but then it declines. And what it suggests? It suggests that the system was flexible enough in Western Poland to allow some aging householders to be replaced by the younger generation. Whereas, once you became a household head, here in the East, you, you are the household head until your very last days. So again, this tells you a little bit about the structure of intergenerational authority and about the importance of seniority in the life course decisions and also in, in terms of well, simply householding. Hmm? Okay, I'll just skip that. Okay, and um, the structure of domestic groups. Probably as historians, maybe as anthropologists, we came across I mean, some, some research that was suggesting that actually looking at household structure is important. Just to show you very elementary statistics, distinguishing percentage of households which were simple, consisting of parents and children, and multiple family households which consisted of at least two conjugal, family, conjugal families living under one roof. It's 80% in Western Poland were simple. This is higher than in England. Whereas in the Eastern territories, except for the East too, you find a very different, very, in, in, a, in fact, a reverse pattern which gives predominance to rather complex families over nuclear families. And just to illustrate you the point, I created this scatter plot. All these points refer to all these 100, 200 something parishes. The colors indicate the um, cluster membership. The X axis tells you for each place proportion of nuclear family households. The Y axis tells you proportion of uh, multiple family households. So you see all the, most of the Western uh, parishes are highly clustered here. They have a very high proportion of nuclear family households and hardly ever more multiple family households than 20%. But what you see there it's like a completely like a mirror image. They have actually 60 to 80 percent of multiple family households and only 30 to 20 percent of uh, nuclear family households. So, I mean, just imagine and between some of those western parishes and some of those eastern parishes, this is probably a distance of 800, 900 kilometers. It's pretty big for pre-modern conditions, but still, I mean, imagine traveling and you can you could see those you know small huts with only you know parents and two kids, and then you move 
hundreds of kilometers, and you see how it's consisting of you know, 10, 15 people, two married sons, three married sons, all living together under one roof. So this is, this is a really important structural difference. Okay, and the very final quantitative slide, which is about the elderly. So you can think about residential patterns among the elderly by looking at what proportion of people aged 65 plus was actually co-residing with one married child, can be married son or married daughter, or at least two married children. And when, when you look at the first variable, then you see, well, there's not so much of the contrast, although these eastern areas still have higher proportions. I mean, this northern area around Gdansk is very strange. But then if you look at proportion of those living with at least two married children, then you see that basically living with at least two married children simply did not exist in Western Poland. Whereas in some areas, especially in Polesia, more than around one third of all elderly people were actually living with at least two married children. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so we need to explain, we need to understand why we have within one political geographical space two contrasting ways of organizing the family life. One around early home living, later marriage, domestic service, well, quite clear association between marrying and becoming a head of a household, little multi-generational co-residence, and, uh, well, sort of vulnerable aging, if we consider that most of those elderly people were not actually living with their married children in the old age. And then in the East we have a sort of, again, sort of a mirror image with very much delayed home living, at least for males. No alternatives to family roles because there was basically no service. There was no chance for a man or female to become a servant and performing household tasks in the household of people to whom they were not related, etc., etc. And we can think of a simple, you know, it looks very childish. A simple model where co-residence is actually influenced by the host of interacting factors, of which I think the three are of the highest importance, at least for us today. One is the kinship organization of the society. The second is the religious affiliation of the given population, because I believe that both influence sort of preferences, or econ economists would say tastes, regarding postmarital residence, age of marriage, and different structuring of life course transitions. And manorial system, as I will come to, to that in a moment, was the overarching socio-economic institutional framework in that part of Europe, which highly determined and conditions whether those tastes or preferences could actually come through. And ecology and population density were both very important, but I will not spend too much time discussing them. I mean, they both appear uh, while discussing at least some of those. The factor that is not mentioned here is demography. Demography is such, because whether you, the extent to which you coincide with your father depends primarily on the fact whether your father is alive or dead. You can't coincide with your father if your father is dead. 
So different levels of mortality could definitely affect proportion. But this is not the, I mean, uh, I, have, I have checked this, I have tested it using, uh, actually utilizing the help of my colleague Jim Open uh, from Cambridge, who runs a series of micro simulations to, to, to check whether the contrast that I'm seeing is primarily effect of demography, and it's not. Okay, the first issue, and I think the most important issue, is are the divergences in historical kinship organization. This is the map, I'm sorry it's in Russian, but I couldn't find a better one. Maybe some of you can read Russian. Showing the distribution of Slavic people in the eastern part of Europe. Western Slavs, Eastern Slavs, Southern Slavs. I mean, this is not just an artificial division. This, this is actually the division that, well, it, it exists in scientific literature, and also it carries on a certain meaning. Scholars like Henrik Bogmiański, Kadlet, and uh, Oskar Balzer, Oswald Balzer, they all suggested that already from the earliest medieval times there existed substantial differences between these Slavic groups. Not only between Western and Eastern Slavs, but also between Western Slavs and Southern Slavs. I mean, Southern Slavs are, in many respects, very, very particular. So anybody who has ever worked on, on the Balkan area would find a lot of very surprising features which have never occurred in, in other parts of Europe. But the crucial point about these this divergences is the fact that among Western Slavs, according to Wojmiański and some others, very early occurred the disintegration of the original corporate patrilineage, patrilineal groups. I mean, when the Slavic people were migrating, they were migrating in groups, in sort of distant groups, groups formed around the ancestor, the chief. So they were patrilineal groups, something like clans, but not exactly like clans. Once they settled down, well, in, obviously in Western part, uh, in, among Western Slavs, these corporate lineage groups became slowly disintegrated. And it's pretty much established that among Western Slavs, by the end of 15th century, you won't find in, in illegal sources indicators of the existence of corporate lineage distant patrilineal groups. On the other hand, we know that among Eastern Slavs, among Belarusians in particular, but also among Ukrainians, you will find traces of those distant groups as long as at the end of the 19th century. They were, uh, they were diminishing during the course of the 19th century, but still, as Yefimenko argued, in the 19th century, they were still mentally not adapted to the rules of individualized property. And she was referring to this sort of historical heritage, thinking in terms of lineage, thinking in terms of this and group. Okay, why do we think it's important, the distinction just being made? Well, because within the lineage, individual life course decisions are embedded in a keen-based pattern of decisions. These are all they are surrounded by keen, especially marriage. Marriage is not just a matter of individual decision. Marriage is a mean to make alliances between one lineage and another lineage. And this is why the marriage needs to be tightly controlled by the elders. And it's also very important that the marriage occurs earlier, because the earlier it occurs, 
the wider the means at the disposal of the elderly to control newlyweds. Also, the lineage groups, they foster residential and economic communes of kinsmen, of the male lineage, and joint management of the property. They foster also strong family ties, familial loyalty, obedience, and filial pity, and they can be very durable and robust. Here I would like to present you some qualitative evidence, which I hope will shed some additional light on those differences. And I will follow uh, a certain order of, of topics, and I will be using the evidence that comes from, well, very miscellaneous and dispersed material coming from village card rolls, card protocols, um, well, existing ethnographies, ethnographies, but we should bear in mind that many of those ethnographers from the 19th century were, you know, barely professional ethnographers. They were just collecting folk stories and episodes and they could get impressed by just one isolated fact and build the whole theory on the basis of just this one little finding. So, I mean, we need to be careful. So, when it comes to living home, on the left side we will always have the, the Western population. So, I came a lot of cases, uh, this is actually from the court protocols, where the people were testifying, like for example, at the age of five I was sent by my mother into service. I left Jerome, the village, as a young boy on my father's order and served at many households in various villages, 1746. Up until I was ten, I stayed with my father, then I went into service as shepherd, 1754. And you can multiply this, this, this sort of testimonies. What happened in the East? We have uh, quite a comprehensive, some 80 pages, quite a dense, a thick description of the population in Belarus, but the problem is it comes from the late 19th century. But we have no reasons to believe that the situation was very much different some hundred years earlier. Probably it was even sort of, it was even worse, as you will see what I mean from reading this passage. So Yelenska describing the, the pattern, I mean, the, 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 um, uh, how the family was constructed in organizing Belarus, she indicated that the happiest and the wealthiest huts are those in which the entire family works as a, on a single patch of land to which the elderly encourage their children. The young left the family nest only in extreme cases when life in the hut was strained with hardships with too many mouths to feed. So again we see a clear contrast between uh, this miscellaneous but still very telling evidence of you know, young people leaving home, being sent or just wishing to be sent uh, for service in another place outside the family of origins and this concentration of family members under one roof in, in the eastern territories. Well, the big issue is to what extent elderly in the West and the East could actually interfere in the matrimonial decisions of, of, of their offspring. No doubt, across all parts of Lithuania, elderly have always had a say about their children's marriage, whether that was Western, Southern or Eastern part. But there are some subtle differences. This is the case from 18th century southern village, not very far from Krakow, where we have the case of Matthias Kozio from the village of Tinitz, broke his daughter's engagement to a young man named Marcik, justifying his decision with his desire to give her to a different bachelor. When, however, even the second attempt to marry her off fell through, despite the commitments her father had made, the village court became interested in the matter. During the investigation, the daughter was asked which candidate she would prefer she answered she would, bet she would rather choose the first, 
and the second would be a forced choice imposed on her by her parents' numerous tricks. In the face of such a state of affairs, Descartes rules that, since the parents resort to tricks and deviousness, Descartes demands that they marry her off to marching, obliging them to immediately grant them her due dowry. So, this is a very interesting case showing you that uh, there is a non-familial institution that is actually interfering in the family affairs, and this is the, the, the um, village commune uh, composed of village elders who were sort of captivated by, well, tricks of an older generation who tried to manipulate the daughter into uh, an arranged marriage. How the situation would look in the East? We have quite compelling ethnographies from Belarus. Moshinsky, who did the fieldwork around 1914, he reported that whenever he interrogated elderly people, he was saying, well, in the old times, the bachelor might not have even seen his prospective bride at all prior to the wedding. And this is actually corroborated by, much, by far more extensive evidence collected by Obramsky, already mentioned before, <coughs> who interviewed a <clears throat> several men in several villages in Polesia, in Belarus. And this is one of the very telling, extensive testimonies. This is early 1930s. If only there were at hand a nice pair of oxen, the father would sell the oxen, take a barrel of vodka, go to get the godfather, and together they would go to fetch the girl with whom they alone had picked up without asking me their son for my opinion. They go and take the girl as they please. If the girl is a lo local of the village, then the boy knows her, but hides himself out of shame that it is him whom his father and godfather are marrying of. If she comes from a different village, then he has no way of knowing whatsoever what kind of girl she is, blind, crooked, lame. He doesn't see her at all until the day of the engagement. So providing this uh, sort of informant, he was probably 60, maybe 70 in early 1930s, he's probably referring to the situation from the late 19th century. So, I mean, we have many reasons to believe that the situation was very much the same, or even worse, at the end of the uh, 18th century. Okay, talking about the elderly. Again, uh, he is a doyen of Kohlberg, is a doyen of the um, Polish ethnography. He collected lots of folklorist information from different parts of Poland, but luckily he also conducted the fieldwork in the central part of Poland, which is actually covered by my database. But again, this is mid, around mid-19th century. And he reported from the area known as Kuyavia that the youngsters show much respect for the elderly. A farmhand, even if already married, will salute a, a venerable horse and bend to his knees before him. This doesn't mean that the young generation does not stand for beggarhood, superfluous old men no longer capable of tending their grandchildren. The practice, however, is perceived as natural and doesn't insult any of the involved sides. Well, I mean, it's just a hint. Probably he saw some strange cases. Uh, we don't know exactly to what extent the practice of really not caring for, their, for, for the, the aging parents was right within that area. But, it, well, let's confront it with what we know from the East. Uh, again, referring to Ombrebski, he even coined the term patro, patroletoria which refers to godlike sanctity attributed to the father. And it's, his concept is really backed up on the pages of his 600 pages book by lots of testimonies pertaining to the, well, the call of the father and the importance that is attached to 
the older generation to the opinion of the older generation. So he argued actually the cult of the father was one of the most prominent features of Polish's grand familiar organization. Well, we know that the picture is not that black and white because we know from another 19th century scholar who was carefully in the second half of the 19th century going through uh, protocols of court records in, in Belarus that actually they were cases of really disobedient children who even beaten their parents, uh, their elderly fathers, etc. But I mean, it, it still suggests some possible contrast which would need to be you know, checked with probably more, more um, extensive documentation. Okay, and two final issues. I mean, all these features that I have mentioned so far, presumably very strong parental authority, probably stronger in the East than in the West, and parental interference into children's marriage would not be possible if it wouldn't be sanctioned or molded by additional factors. And I have reasons to believe that the division between Western and Eastern Christianity that was, that was prevalent on the territories of historical Poland-Lithuania had important implications in this regard. Why? We know from Jack Goody's work from early 1980s that there existed important differences between Western and Eastern Christianity, crucial for the understanding on the development of certain types of families and marriage in Europe. First of all, we know that the institutional power of the Eastern Church, including the Greek Catholics, I mean, I should probably, for those who, I mean, they are not Catholics, I mean, they are Orthodox who were forced to obey the rule of the Vatican. That was a sort of very strange and not very long-lasting compromise within historical Poland, Lithuania, and Natalie probably she knows much more about this. But in terms of liturgy and canon law, they were much more like Orthodox than like Catholics. So what we know about the Eastern Church, the, the Greek Orthodox, is that it has a much, much weaker institutional structure than the Catholic Church. And hence, I mean, that's also actually the argument of Goody and also Mitterauer, this Eastern Church was much less successful in prevailing against the long-term effects of the kinship customs and practices of the pre-Christian substratum. There were also some doctrinal differences between Western and Eastern churches. As far as I can say, upon the reading of a very informative essay by Lloyd Bonfield, the Western Christianity, uh, within the Western Christianity, there was basically no requirement for parental consent for marriage. This is because of the constant theory of marriage that comes from the 12th century. Uh, I don't remember the name of the Pope who actually made the case for this, but it actually functions in the literature as one of the important features, uh, differentiations between Western and Eastern Christianity. And actually within Eastern Christianity, my reading of several works, including the work of Levin, suggests that parents had both the right and the obligation to arrange marriages. And also there was a requirement of the parental permission for marriage in law and custom. And, well, uh, you will find also very much the same pattern in Russia, which is, which is strictly orthodox. Okay, um, well, if you want to learn about some strange rituals which were not possible to 
be eliminated by the Eastern Church. This is the, what we know also uh, for Eastern parts of Poland is the prevalence of the very important ritual, which was the part of the wedding ritual, which was called this pokwadzimy. It was about testing the bride's innocence, but it was actually before the wedding took place. I mean, the traditional wedding in Belarus could last for two weeks. It started from, uh, you know, there were certain procedures that were going step by step, and at the very end there was the wedding. So, but before the wedding, they were actually, they were, the, the, the ritual was made to sort of test for the bride's innocence. And what we know is actually from, from the ethnographic um, traces that the, the ritual featured in Belarus, Ukraine, it's known also for Russia, Bulgaria, Slovenia, it's known also in early 20th century Albania. But as far as I can say, uh, on the basis of the literature, it suggests that actually it, it vanished by the end of the 17th century, it vanished from the western areas of Poland. And uh, I mean, this, this notion of, of, of female virginity, it's also an element that is used in the literature to explain why in some parts of the world female marriages occur at the very, very early age. Well, whether that's, that's actually, you know, it's just more like a... Okay, and to close it... And the final feature that actually created, uh, uh, well, sometimes sustained, sometimes counteract the prevailing kinship organization in those different territories is what is known as the manorial system. For those who know a little bit about the big topics in economic history of Europe, you know, that Eastern Europe is, 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 is traditionally associated with the second serving system, which is simply, you know, nobody owns the land, the land belongs to the landlord, and peasants, in return of a tenancy over the land holding, are forced to do, to perform a certain regular, quite harsh labor for the domain which is known as corvée, panschtisma in Polish. And the manorial system, known in German literature as the Hufenverfassung system, is said to be, to have spread from the Carolingian Empire, from the Middle Ages, to the West, and this is the line sort of suggesting the extent of this Hufenverfassung system in the eastern part of Europe. The line was suggested by a very notable Social economic historian and also family historian Michael Mitterauer. And according to Mitterauer, and it's actually corroborated by some other scholars, there were three features of the manorial system. First, the principle of a single heir, impartable farm succession. No divisions of farms, only one heir. A rule which dictated that only one married couple or conjugal family unit could live on a particle hide or could live on a, on a farmstead. The hide, which is the hufe in German, it's often described in, in medieval sources terra unius familia, so the, the land of one family. So there was explicitly stated that the hide system was supposed to allocate mm, fixed pieces of land to conjugal families, not big lineages, but conjugal families. And of course, in order, I mean, peasants were forced to perform certain kinds of labor. And what we know is that the system has been well established already since Middle Ages on the territories of Western Poland, presumably successfully implementing 
what I call the pro-nuclear policy. I mean, the landlords, well, not everywhere, they seem to be very much concerned about whether there's not too much of an agglomeration of a family labor on a one fixed plot. And whenever they saw it, they really intervened and said, okay, you have to split. There is a vacancy in the village. We have a lot of, you know, uncultivated land. The system, which is very important, has been introduced in Lithuania and Belarus in the late 16th century. There was a great reform which captivated the attention of many, many scholars, also including British geographers, historical geographers. But the reform partly failed. It failed because many different reasons. One of those reasons were ecological constraints. I mean, this area has a very bad sort of ecological environment because of swamps, forests, no communication, uh, I mean, infrastructure, really secluded areas, but also because of the resistance of the rural folks. We know of some certain uprisings taking place in the reaction to the landlords who were trying to implement the manorial system. So, in fact, what appears in those eastern areas is a sort of mixture of different legal arrangements, a hybrid institutional systems. And in particular, the mixture of the German law and the Ruthenian law. So different sort of common laws that were created a very, very interesting uh, element. And you, you really see it, uh, for example, if you, if you go through uh, village cardinals on those sort of transitory area, and you see, for example, uh, a father is making a will. And he says, OK, I divide my whole property to my five sons. They all are mentioned there. Well, it seems like a portable inheritance system. Farms that is divided, but it shouldn't be. And then you go to the next page in the record, and you see all those five sons, the, the father is dead by that time, they all meet together and say, okay, we four give all the property to the eldest one. So there's a, there's a partability, but actually it's, it remains impartable. And it's simply, you know, it's a mixture of two different traditions, the Ruthenian one and the, and the Eusteutonicum, the German one. Okay, I'll probably stop here. Um, I just wanted to show you some. Okay, so basically what we see here, if you look at historical Poland, Lithuania, we see that how young people marry, when they marry, and when they reside after marriage, differed very much between different parts of Poland, Lithuania. What also different were how they were making different critical life course transitions, and how these life course transitions, like transition to marriage, transition from marriage to headship have been uh, structured. It seems also that intergenerational relations and authority patterns also differ. Recall that figure where I showed that the blue curve was declining, suggesting that actually parents were stepping down and allowing all the younger generation to step in and take over the headship of the farms that quite unlikely, quite unlike in the eastern areas. It also seems that the economy behavior and attitudes towards household recruitment are also different. Because in, in the eastern areas, householders were simply not hiring servants. It was simply impossible. Well, there are also certain proverbs which still exist in Belarusian, which I was able to track down, suggesting that going into service is the highest possible shame for the family from which you come. Hmm? That, that's the Belarusian sentence. It also suggests that the family and kin obligations were probably structured differently and that the welfare functions performed by the family were also structured differently. 
We don't know, and it would be too much of an oversimplification to say that in the eastern areas, these elderly guys were simply enjoying, you know, happiness, uh, were, were blossomed, or surrounded by grandchildren and grand-grandchildren, and, you know, no harm made to them. But, I mean, this is looking from, uh, looking, at, uh, looking at those families from the perspective of a household structure, we see that actually, you know, it's probably better to be surrounded by married sons and grandchildren than to be surrounded by people to whom you are not related in your age. I don't know. It also seems that extent to which family roles and only family roles were at the core of people's lives also differed strongly. For example, if you look at the typical life course of a male or female from Western Poland, in quite many cases you find there's a shorter or longer phase of being a servant. So these people are exposed to the labor market, they, are, they exist on the labor market, they are exposed to contacts with people to whom they are not related. This is not possible in the East, at least at the end of the 18th century. And also the importance given to the family and the needs of the collective, as opposed to the individual and personal needs. Well, I mean, well, if we think that going into service to earn some money may help yourself, may help you to collect, to accumulate capital for your own wedding, well, then probably we would think about the Western system as more sort of flexible, more inclined to allow people to realize their own personal needs. But I mean, the problem is much more complicated because we know, for example, that very often those children that were in service were actually sent there by their parents and they sent them to the specific householders to whom the parents made a debt. So in order to pay back the debt, they sent their, their children to work on those farmsteads. So I, mean, so, I mean, if all this is true, if all this is true, and this seems to be true for a certain moment in history, for the 18th century, before the abolition of serfdom, then it's inescapable to say that Huntington was right when he suggested that there was a civilizational divide. But well, he was talking about contemporary Eastern Europe. I'm dealing with the 18th century Europe. And in order to accept Huntington's in famous claims, in full, we would need to look into how the system described here evolved over the course of the 19th century and even over the course of the first decade of the 20th century. Well, this is for another story. If you see, I have some 15 slides more, but I won't bother you today. Um, but I'm happy to answer in anticipation some of your questions. Thank you.